The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. What would you care to wager? Ah. Uh, oh. What a handsome container. There's an old Ferengi expression. Good things come in small packages. <laughs> Sticks? Clan pigs. Highly sought in our culture. They have many different uses. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I have enough sticks right now. What's this? Alpha current nectar. It's priceless. Oh. One man's priceless is another man's worthless. Quark, take the juice. Sorry, not interested. Then we really have nothing to wager, except this. Get these folks some drinks. Welcome everyone. It is Thursday, September 13, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion. That's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show today, where we're joined in studio with Western University Associate Professor Salim Ansir. Welcome, Salim. Thank you, Bob and Robert. We're going to be talking today mainly about the gong show that is American politics, the distractions, the circus. But before we start our discussion, let me remind you to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, follow us on SoundCloud, and hear us on shortwave radio, WBCQ, and on shortwave channel 292 out of Germany. Visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, and of course, all of our archived broadcasts. So, Salim, Fill us in on the NAFTA fiasco, Canada's position, the United States' position, where we stand today. Yes, uh, Robert. The situation as we understand it, as we are speaking, is as follows. The Mexican and the Americans uh, got into a bilateral negotiation and came to an agreement, the United States-Mexico Free Trade Agreement. The Americans, as President Trump and his uh, trade people have file the 90 days notice that is required as per congressional uh, ruling. So that 90 days and what it means is that the relevant congressional committee is going to go through the agreement and uh, come back and uh, whether they require some amendments, some changes, or they approve it. And once that is done, then the agreement will be then coming into effect. So it has to be done by Congress, not unilaterally by the president? No, the Congress has a say in the matter in the okay. sense that the Congress is the oversight. The president, that is the executive, is responsible for drawing up the agreements, for negotiating it, but then it has to be submitted for congressional oversight and congressional approval. Once that is done, then there will be a timeline announced when the when the tr- agreement will come into effect. What is at stake 
when you're choosing between, say, two bilateral deals and one big NAFTA deal? What, what is the difference between the two? Wouldn't they eventually wash out the same? Or what is the advantage of being in NAFTA, where all three nations of North America are included, versus the U.S. making two bilateral deals with each of the countries? What would be different that would be so dramatic that people are worried about? Well, what will be different is that there will be no NAFTA. At the moment, you might say... But trade would carry on, right? Wouldn't it? Maybe maybe trade. Yes. And might it not improve for each of the nations in the bilateral deal? Or, like, like what is the advantage of including the third party in on a two-party deal if you're talking trade between two parties? You know what I'm saying? Are we... Well, let's be specific. You know, we have three parties in NAFTA, that is Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Mm-hmm. There was actually two parties. If you go back to the historical record, a free trade agreement was negotiated between Canada and the United States in 1988. So there was basically Canada-U.S. free trade for something like five years. Between 1988 and 1994, January of 1994, when NAFTA came into effect, Mexico was not there. It was Canadian initiative, that is Mulroney government initiative, that once the free trade agreement was signed in 1988, to then broaden that United States-Canada free trade agreement and bring in uh, Mexico. The question then you might ask, why was that initiative taken by Canadians? You're right, I'm asking it. <laughs> right. So you're asking that question. It's a legitimate question. It's the obvious question. Well, the answer is that Canada did not want to be in a situation where the United States and Mexico then engage in a bilateral agreement between the two of them, right. which would be then a Mexico-United States free trade agreement, and Canada be left out of it. Uh, and whatever advantages are negotiated between the United States and Mexico, then in some ways disadvantage Canada in this continental trade. Okay. So what you're saying is our beef with losing NAFTA is that Mexico might get an upper hand on us in a deal with the states not that we might beef. not have. It well, is, it, it is. it's our concern, if you want to put uh, it that yeah, way. Yeah, well... The point is, how have we arrived at this situation? I think that's the more proper way to contextualize this. The point is that that Canada-U.S. free trade was expanded to bring in Mexico. And so we became a North American free trade zone. As a North American free trade zone, we have gone on from 1994 till August of 2018 nearly a quarter century with this set of agreement. And the question, therefore, which the media and others are not getting into adequately and substantively, is what happened in this 25 years that we are in a position where either NAFTA is dead or NAFTA is comatose. Now, no trade agreement is purely an economic agreement. It is also political agreement. That means there is always a balancing between politics and economics. In what other ha- words, we're, we're abusing the word free. You might say you're abusing it, but that's the reality. 
the reality of the world is that there is politics. Politics Understood. is a pursuance of interest. And then there is trade or free trade, which is also pursuance of interest. So, I, I take, uh, for example, when we hear the Trudeau government always talking about defending the, the supply management system, they say how much they value trade, but they don't right. say free trade. And that, to me, is what the whole battle is about. And well, I understand a free trade agreement, you know, being a scale of reducing tariffs over time. That's a good deal. I would call that a free trade deal. Well, is, it, is the fact now that we've reached a point where... Well, all of that is relevant. The question is, what is it that you want to discuss? Do you want to discuss economic theory or do you want to discuss NAFTA? United, uh, uh, the idea of uh, a free trade based on comparative advantage, which is what trade that's is. That's not what I'm talking about. Just a though. moment. I mean, that's what mm -hmm. you have raised the issue. So the free trade can go back all the way to Adam Smith. But the greatest trading players, when you examine them, have all been balancing trade against political interest. And so that's what the technical term is mercantilism. Right. And the greatest practitioner of mercantilism was Britain that enforced uh, uh, trading to the advantage of British by having the supremacy, that is the British Navy, mm -hmm. supremacy of the trading lanes, that is the ocean in those days. Sure. So that's how Britain maintained its supremacy in trading relationship. So... Okay, so you can talk about that, I mean, and you raise the issue of supply management, and Canada can point out the other areas within the trading agreement that was negotiated and that has been in practice, that the Americans have supply management. The American supply management is, for instance, this, the, the subsidies to industries in the military-industrial complex. Sure. Okay, so that's exactly what I'm uh, pointing out, that trading relation based on economic ideas that you lower the tariffs on goods so that, you know, you know, goods and services will move freely to the advantage of both the producers and the consumers. However, there are other interests, and those interests each of the actors seeks to protect. In this case, as you're pointing out, it is both the liberals and the conservative going all the way back to the conservative prime minister who negotiated this agreement, which was Brian Maroney, have protected areas of interest that they don't want to be open. And in this case, it's the, it's the dairy farmers in Canada. Also, there have been subs subsidies given to industries like Bombardier in Quebec is a key component of Quebec economy. Canadian aviation uh, that has been uh, protected. Canadian uh, cultural items have been protected. And the United States have protected some of their items. And as I said, anything uh, related to the military-industrial complex have been protected. But coming back to NAFTA, the situation at the end of almost a quarter century where we are in this fix where NAFTA if it is dead after the notices have all gone through, which is the American requirement based upon their constitution, and the U.S.-Mexico free trade agreement comes into effect, the question for 35 million people in Canada that have benefited from NAFTA in the overall sense is where do we go next? What is that we do? And a related question, and how did this come about? I know exactly how it came about. It was Donald Trump. 
Donald Trump yeah. basically identified what you were talking about, Bob, and that is that NAFTA is not a free trade agreement. There are benefits to one side over the other that he did not stomach. And he did not like the fact that there were tariffs. And he, he's guilty of having tariffs as well, as you say, Salim, on the United States side. But he correctly points out that how can you call this a free trade agreement if you have a 300% tariff on American dairy products? You can't. So that's why we have the discussion that we're having today, strictly because of Donald Trump. We wouldn't be talking about it if it wasn't was anybody else in the White House. Yeah, but that's only part of the story. Canada is a massive trading partner of the United States. But what is it going to take? Well, dairy farmers all across this country, Ontario included, are watching this very, very closely because they want to make sure that domestic policies that have existed are still respected in any particular deal that they may become a part of. Supply management is a phrase that you're going to hear a whole lot. And joining us right now is someone who can help us understand a number of those things. Graham Lloyd is the general manager and CEO of the Dairy Farmers of Ontario. Graham, thanks so much for taking some time out for us. Oh, thank you very much. Graham, let's begin with supply management. Can you define it for us, please? Yeah, it's not the easiest thing to define, but uh, it, it's a system whereby um, the amount of the milk requirements uh, that the country needs uh, is allocated to the provinces, and then the provinces allocate it to the farmers for production purposes, so how the, the amount of milk that will come off the farms, and that way the supply that comes off the farms is to meet the requirements that processors need. Gotcha. Here's so it, it helps control, for instance, if you want to compare what's going on with the United States, you'll hear that they're having this massive overproduction problems. Uh, our system is able to avoid overproduction. Okay. And in fact, what's going on in the United States, and, and one of the challenges that we get into NAFTA is they have a massive oversupply. And so they're desperate to find any market they can. Um, they, they're trying to compete into the world market, and they don't have any production controls. So when you look at states just like uh, New, you take New York, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and they overproduce or have excess milk on a daily basis equal to all of the milk produced in Ontario uh, on a daily basis. So uh, that's why one of the reasons we say with respect to the NAFTA uh, opening up the Canadian market will be meaningless to what the Americans need. Uh, they need to actually put better restrictions and, and, and controls on how they are producing their milk. So you're looking at it, they need to go the other way because it seems like they are eager to be able to sell their milk in other markets. And let's face it, milk has a shelf life. Canada's pretty close. Canada would seem like a relatively easy place to sell their milk. But you're saying, wait a minute, you should go the other way. You've got to restrict how much milk is being produced. Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, as recently as in July, their largest cooperative, uh, Dairy Farmers of America, actually voted and passed a resolution to start examining their production controls. They're starting to have a groundswell. It came out of started in Wisconsin, um, identifying that in fact uh, what's causing the bankrupt farms there is that they, uh, there's too much competition and no controls, and so they're all uh, driving for the lowest uh, and driving to the bottom as opposed to trying. Uh, protect one another. Now, Mr. Douglas, 
I can give you a good buy on this milking machine. <laughs> it's a genuine Cooper cow coacher. It's guaranteed to persuade milk out of the most bashful cow. Mr. Haney, I don't need a milking machine. Well, of course you don't, but uh, what about your cow? My cow... Mr. Douglas, just put your finger in there. No, I don't. Oh, go on. Often. Ain't that soothing? It's fur line. Fur? Soft, warm. Your cow will move with joy not to have to put up with your cold fingers on a frosty morning. It won't hurt her to suffer a little. So let's bring it home, Salim. We know that Donald Trump was more or less the instigator of this entire discussion about NAFTA. And I suspect part of that story, as you say, the rest of the story, channeling Paul Harvey, would be that here in Canada... We have a very, very weak prime minister, a very weak government when it comes to what it takes to negotiate hardball with somebody like the United States and a Donald Trump. Would you say that that's part and parcel of why we're having the discussion? No, I, do, I don't agree no. with m- much of what, what you've just now said and the premise and the reason the fault has as follows. When you say it's a weak government, what do you mean by the weakness? If you want to define it, you know, this government has a massive majority in the parliament, 184 seats. That's not what I meant by weak. So exactly. I think so what I meant by weak is that Trump can see Trudeau has joined a club which he doesn't belong to. He really doesn't belong. It requires a certain sense of intelligence that Trudeau does not have and Christian Freeland does not have. The main players on the Canadian side are not the kind of people that would represent Canada forcefully enough to be able to come into an agreement with uh, somebody like a Donald Trump who has spent his entire life negotiating. That's the kind of... Um, weakness I'm talking about. A weakness of will, a weakness of intelligence on Earth. I will still correct you from my perspective. It's not a question of weakness. It's a question of ineptness. It is a question of incapacity to understand the issues and deal with them, whether it is exactly. NAFTA. Exactly. Let's get out the, so s- the not, source, because a, that's okay. what I'm talking about. Uh, anyhow, so we... Uh, I don't I want to put with word, but it's not a weakness. <laughs> he's, a t- he's a man t- out of his depth, completely. Yes. He doesn't belong. All right, so if you agree on that, so here it is. What has happened is that uh, Canada has gone into the negotiation when Trump opened it up. Trump opened it up, as, as, as you correctly pointed out, this has been his campaign promise, that he will have a proper free trade agreement that does not rip off American workers and American industry. Uh, and and he has been saying this that America is being ripped off, not by Canada, by the way. But he has been saying this: America's main target has been China, China yeah. and the European Union. Okay, it is not Canada. So this is the ineptness I'm talking about. What happened was, again, we can get lost in the granular, and you don't have the time on it. But what happened was very simple. He was building up his tariff wall to buckle China and get the playing field equal, that the Chinese have to open up their market, Chinese have to deal with the huge surpluses against the American economy in in the question of trade. And on that discussion and on that target, the issue of steel and aluminum came up, and that's where the tariff was being built. And Trump demanded that the NAFTA partners of the United States, which is 
Canada and Mexico shut the door on China and any other country that is using Canada and Mexico as a backdoor into United States market. So the demand on Canada was to agree that Canada will not be a conduit for Chinese dumping of steel and aluminium. That's where the ineptness of the prime minister and his team came up. Instead of negotiating that, understanding the American position, protecting the Canadian interest, this man, Justin Trudeau, and his global affairs minister, Christia Freeland, went talking about what? Trump being a bully. Talking about gender rights, transgender rights, right LGBTQ rights, you know, virtues signaling, and that shut the door on negotiation. Because what has any of that got to do with trade, okay? This is where the ineptness. So now we go into the G7. In the G7 meeting, the, the, the European tried to gang up on Trump when Trump was insistent that Europe has to open up its market to American goods, lower the tariffs, just as Americans have. And also, if Europe wants to buy oil from Russia, oil and gas from Russia, then Europe has to answer where Europe is on NATO in terms of NATO spending. Justin Trudeau went along with the Europeans. Trump and his people had given Justin Trudeau and Canada enough indication that Canada is not on the table, provided Canada meets its obligation of not being a backdoor to anybody using Canada into the United States. And on that agreement and understanding, Trump flew away. In fact, the Trump administration has been trying to reassure Canada that we're overreacting to everything that absolutely. they're doing. Yes, I understand. Ab ab yeah. Absolutely. I think we are, too. It, it, it is It is then when Canada then, at the G7, after Trump had left, with the understanding that, you know, Canada understood his position, and Trump told his trade advisor, Larry Kidlaw and others, that they can sign the communique at the end of the conference. Trump was going to remind your listener to Singapore to meet with Kim Jong-il for that mm -hmm. North Korean-U.S. summit. Mr. Trudeau had his press conference while Trump was airborne, and in that press conference, Mr. Trudeau said that if America is going to put tariff on Canada because of national security interests, aluminum and steel is American national security interests, then Canada will be obliged to put also tariffs on American goods coming in, which is what? Ketchup, orange juice, you know, pens, and so on. This is when the Trump heard this while he was on the plane, and he then instructed his people not to sign the communique, and that's when Trump and his people started talking about what is Canada complaining about? Canada has 300% tariffs on dairy products. And that's when the story about dairy products, 11,000 farmers in Quebec, dairy farmers in Quebec, and what it means to the Canadian consumer all opened up. So you're right. It is, that's when the story opened up. Where we are right now is we are in effect, that is we, that is the Canadian Prime Minister, who is from Quebec, is defending Quebec dairy farmers against the rest of the country. 
as if the rest of the country's economy doesn't mean the same as it does mean 11,000 dairy workers for Quebec economy. And by the way, Quebec is having their election. So all the four parties in Quebec, the Quebec Liberal Party, the Parti Québécois, the Coalition Avenir Quebec, CAQ, and Quebec Solidaire, all the four leaders came out and said they will stand firm in defense of supply management that they will hold the Canadian government responsible, which happens to be a prime minister from Quebec. And again, for your listeners, to this is a, a little bit of historical reminder. That's exactly what Pierre Trudeau, his father, did in 1979 when he slapped the national energy uh, policy on Alberta to protect the Quebec consumers. Remember? And that led to then the defeat of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau in the 1979 election. And were it not for Joe Clark bumbling the ball as a minority government, Pierre Trudeau would have been history. So we are in a situation as Canada where the beating heart of Ontario's economy, that is automobile, auto parts, 120,000 workers, and the entire ripple effect of that economy is now on the line if Trump starts putting tariff on automobile and auto parts. So that's where we are now. So that, I, I guess, is a... A Canada's gong show is that we have a, a government who could not see the bigger picture, could not negotiate politically, exactly. uh, could not see President Trump's end game, could not understand the players' motivations. They were inept not in necessarily the picayune nature of trade negotiations, but in political negotiations. Plus, they underestimated uh, the fact that Mexico would go forward ignoring Canada into a bilateral negotiation, which is what Trump also wanted, you know, because the whole policy of Trump or the objective of Trump has been to renegotiate NAFTA, not to throw it away, uh, which means that those things that each of the parties to the negotiation considers disadvantage to them, uh, and in the case of Trump, which is the dumping of the goods that are taking place in America at the expense of American workers, American industry, those will be taken care of in a new NAFTA or what we might call NAFTA II, a revision of the trade mm. agreement. That has now been basically derailed to the point that NAFTA might be dead once the notice that Trump has given to the Congress all works its way through the system. Then Canada will be left out of the new agreement that the uh, United States has signed with Mexico. If NAFTA is dead from the point of view of the Americans, does that mean that the agreements that we've had with Mexico are also off the table, or uh, I should say uh, rescinded? Well, that will depend upon the Mexican government and Canada whether they are going to have their own bilateral talk to engage in that sort of uh, agreement and keep that part of NAFTA going. But again, to remind your listeners, uh, 80% of our trade, we are a resource-producing country, you know, so 80% of our trade is with the United States. It is not with Mexico. NAFTA for Mexico was also access to the American market, not to the Canadian market so much. In fact, there are industries where Mexico and Canada are in some sense rival to each other. 
our aviation industry, for instance, you know, Bombardier is a rival to the Mexican aerospace industry and the Brazilian aerospace industry. So it is going to be very difficult. But in the meantime, our main trading partner, which is the United States, will be throwing up tariffs against us, and we'll, we will be in a jeopardy, an economic jeopardy going we're, forward. We're not going to be the only ones who are suffering, though, because any tariff is certainly going to hurt the American people. And perhaps this is where Donald Trump is not looking at the big picture. While 140,000 Americans have their in, uh, business in the steel industry, 14 million Americans have their business using the steel, the cheap steel that comes from China via Canada. So it's those people who are going to be hurt by Trump's tariffs as well. You know, there's always uh, pros and cons, cost and benefit. For uh, President Trump, the objective has been and the gamble has been that whatever is the transitional cost of adjustment, the bigger picture for him is getting industries back to America that had gone overseas because of cheap labor and because, you know, uh, of advantages of having uh, industries overseas. So he is trying to bring the industry back on the question of uh, steel and aluminum, the steel industry. American steel industries had basically shut it down. There, there was, I believe, only two major steel industry operating in America, trying to keep going as the Chinese were dumping steel in, into America. Uh, the, the, the objective of Trump is to revive the American steel industry. So there will be a transition cost. Reviving the steel industry means jobs for the American workers, American workers who have been unemployed or underemployed or who have been living when they were earning $25, $30 an hour on a high-paying, high, highly skilled work, uh, flipping hamburgers. They would rather pay a little more for whatever they were importing from Canada and, and get back on their feet with you know the jobs that left them. So, you see, these are the cost-benefit in any economic argument that takes place. We should have been protecting our industry and our interests, which we failed to do. First, though, yesterday, ooh, what a bombshell. In terms of, on the heels of Bob Woodward's book, uh, some excerpts being released and strong denials from the administration. No, that's a lie. And, admittedly, right, you have to say... Well, it lines up with what a lot of other people have said. Those who are directly quoted disputed it. General Mattis, nope. John Dowd, nope. They disputed it. They, didn't, they, they did not say, oh, yeah, 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 that happened. John Dowd left the administration. He's out of there. And he's like, no, it didn't happen like that. It didn't happen like that. So yesterday, the New York Times published an anonymous op-ed essay. And it's from someone inside the administration. And obviously, this is what happens when it's anonymous and it's to a newspaper. Letters to the editor, right, once the staple of local journalism, you'd attach your name to it. Now, many newspapers make you say something with, you know, your Facebook account so you can verify that you're a real person, even though you could fake that. So if you're writing an op-ed essay for the Times, they didn't just take it from a brown envelope that, that appeared, and they're like, oh, we should run with this. The Times knows who it is. The, the Times knows the person. They've met the person. They've vetted the person. 
The Times has checked the security, has checked their... Okay, no problem. They know who the person is. Because that's their reputation on the line. Now it's up to us to think, who is that person? Who's that person? Who's that person? So let me read you a little bit of it. President Trump is facing a test to his his presidency, unlike any faced by a modern American leader. It's not just the special counsel looms large or that the country is bitterly divided over Mr. Trump's leadership, or even that his party might well lose the House to an opposition hell-bent on his downfall. The dilemma, which he does not fully grasp, is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations. I would know I am one of them. To be clear, ours is not the popular resistance of the left. We want the administration to succeed and think that many of its policies have already made America safer and more prosperous. But we believe our first duty is to this country, and the president continues to act in a manner that is detrimental to the health of our Republic. That is why many Trump appointees have vowed to do what we can to preserve our democratic institutions while thwarting Mr. Trump's more misguided impulses until he is out of office. So it goes on. I mean, you can go to the New York Times if you want to read it. There's lots of links to it. But now the speculation is who, who said it? Who wrote it? You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with you. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. We're in studio with Salim Mansur. And Salim, we were talking about NAFTA, but in the background of all of these discussions with uh, with Canada and Mexico and NAFTA, we have a president in the United States who is being apparently thwarted within his own administration by a so-called, quote, senior official, as was revealed apparently. I mean, well, I'm Apparently, I have to say that apparently because it's anonymous, by the New York Times uh, publishing an anonymous letter from said senior official basically saying that people are deceiving President Trump, taking papers, um, well, we understand from Bob Woodward's new book as well, taking papers, stealing stuff from uh, his desk, not allowing him to sign things that should be signed. Talk about admitting criminal um, activity. Yes, and um, we have this anonymous letter uh, at the Times. So, of course, the Times is fake me- fake news, so I don't know if this is correct or not. But what do you, what do you make of this? How can a president do his job when people apparently in his office are stabbing him in the back, being traitors? Yeah, first of all, it was not an anonymous letter. It was an anonymous op-ed. So it was a New York Times op-ed article written by somebody from within the administration, 
possibly within the White House uh, until this gutless writer comes out and or or he is revealed who he is we don't know but but the claims made or the charges made in this op-ed is that the Trump White House is totally dysfunctional Trump is dysfunctional and amoral uh, amoral immoral uh, it is part of a systematic effort on the part of the deep state, the Democratic Party, the holdovers of the Obama administration uh, that still remains within the administration uh, to uh, nullify the election results of 2016. This is nothing that is apart from that concerted effort. It is the Bob Mueller uh, special counsel hearing that is going on. It is uh, the various books that have been written in the last 16 months. You know, uh, Bob Mo- uh, Woodward's book is the latest one, Fear. There is There was before this, uh, some eight weeks ago, Omarosa's book, Unhinged. There was, the, the, who, who had served in the White House. There was the book by Michael Wolff. Uh, fast and fury so there's been a series of books there's been a series of anonymous leaks all done to show to the american public that this man is unfit to be the president this man who was elected duly elected on the basis of all the constitutional requirement is unfit to be the president and either he needs to be immediately impeached and removed or that a circumstance be created in a manner in which he is forced to resign as was Nixon. That's what is happening. What's happening is you have somebody Apparently, again, we don't know for sure because I'm not going to trust an anonymous source and I do not trust the New York Times. No, certainly not. But let's just say for argument's sake that they are correct, that there is a senior official in the Obama administration who did write this op-ed essay. If that's the case, I think Trump is absolutely correct when he says to the New York Times to out this person for the treasonous act in the broadest sense of the that you of that word certainly traitorous in the definite sense don't of that word no 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 question the whole I thing mean, was a confession to crime so if they don't charge the person who wrote that then the US is dead well we can get into the picayune nature of what is treason in the United States but it certainly wouldn't pass the test of the legal definition of treason in the United States because they're not at war with anybody necessarily unless this is i don't know i, I think there's still a declared war with Iraq, isn't there? I don't know. Or Syria. But um, if this turns out to be a Syrian agent, but that's not, I think, the case here. This is not treasonous legally. It's treasonous in the broad sense of that word. It's traitorous in the broad sense of the word. Yes, the vernacular sense of it. Mm -hmm. And so I think he's absolutely correct to say to the New York Times, you should out, this is out of the ordinary. This is beyond the pale for any press to conceal somebody who is standing behind the president and thwarting his efforts, the duly elected leader of the nation, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, and he's being sidelined by somebody. All of that is true. What is happening is a political assassination taking place, right? So all of that is, as you have expressed it, the question and the answer to the question is simple. Why? 
one half of the country and particularly the people that is the establishment that lives off Washington have not accepted the results of 2016 election. Yeah. Hillary hasn't elected, uh, accepted it. The Democrats have not accepted it. And there's a whole number of Republicans, uh, including the, the, the man who recently passed away, Senator John McCain, for instance. You know, these people, uh, the Bush family, these people have refused to accept the legitimacy of this president. That's what is happening. And the fever will keep on increasing, not diminishing. We are seeing that the manner in which the hearing that is taking place in the Senate of uh, Trump nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, is complete gong show and a complete circus, you know, if you want to get again into the detail. And the fever of this sort of behavior is only in going to increase until the midterm election happens, about 60 days from now as we speak. The result of that election, I think, will bring the fever down. And again, it will escalate as people get involved in the 2020 election. So this is part of this cycle. President Trump is the first man in American post-war history, that is post-1945, who never served in the government. The other man who never got elected to any office but went directly to the White House was General Eisenhower, the five-star general and the victorious commander of the American forces in, in the Second World War in Europe. But in the case of General Eisenhower, he was a man who had served in Washington. So in that sense, he was part of the establishment and, and was elected to be the president. But in the case of Trump, he's a total outsider. He challenged his 17 primary candidates who were all insiders in this sense, who were all elected ex-governors or sitting governors, senators, congressmen, so on and so forth. He defeated all of them. He defeated Hillary Clinton. That means one half of the country stands behind him, the other half of the country that lives by the establishment and therefore will die by the establishment is out to nullify him. So, you, you know, that's the equation that we are faced with right now. What part of complicity do you think the New York Times editorial staff should be responsible for in, in publishing this no, There won't this be letter. any response because they will, they will make the case, an argument, this is the First Amendment right. Again, we are back to politics. And so it is politics. All, what's, this, what's the famous saying? Come on, help me out. All's fair in love and war, you know. So that's what it is. And I, and and also, I, and I pray, and I pray that this remains, and I pray this remains assassination at the political level it doesn't become physical because the New that's York my Times fear. masthead says all the news that's fit to print in my estimation this is not fit to print they could have said that we've received an essay from somebody alluding to this but we're not going to print it because he wants to remain anonymous and somebody should not be a coward when they want to suggest that the president is amoral and that they are doing everything they can to undermine him from inside the white house yeah, but again, if, if, if you want to see the precedent for this sort of behavior, America is full of them. The most important precedent is the Washington Post 
the deep throat, who was anonymous, you know, that led to the resignation of President Nixon. The deep throat was a member of the deep state. We now know after the man finally revealed himself some 30 years later or, or 20 years later after the event was Mark Felt, uh, a, a member of the FBI. I think he was a deputy director of the FBI who uh, Nixon uh, refused to appoint as the FBI director, and Mark Felt took his revenge on Nixon. So, you know, there it is. The Washington Post ran with the story. Bob Woodman and Carl Bernstein were simply reporters of the anonymous source, because that anonymous source was never revealed while that was happening, which led to the resignation of the president. So what we are seeing is a deja vu. It's all over again. Yeah, there, there are parallels, but I think the situation's entirely different. What Nixon was accused of was an actual physical action that, ha that occurred, a break-in at Watergate and all that. What has been he printed... He was of the cover-up. Yeah, yeah, and what was printed in this editorial is nothing of the sort. In fact, this, every word in that editorial that was in the New York Times speaks positively to Trump, and it speaks negatively to the writer who is admitting in every sentence that he's a criminal. I, I'm going to go through this on a future show, sentence by sentence, and I'll tear it to pieces, because this is the most incredible thing I have ever seen in, in the public discourse, and that the, the whole world out there is ignoring it. Now, I heard a commentator discussing this on the radio uh, just the other day, Laura Babcock, who talks to uh, Tom McConnell. And she suggested that among the things, because there's not a single example in this whole editorial of what they're talking about, what's Trump doing. Apparently, she said, and I don't know where she got it from, that Trump is just haphazardly telling people they should go assassinate other political leaders. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Have you heard any rumors to that effect? Well, I mean, the charge made is that Trump was willing to get Hafez Assad physically removed or that there was a discussion with his senior official, that is a defense department official, about uh, removing Hafez Assad. No, sorry, Bashir al-Assad, the, the president of Syria. Hafez was his father. Now, former General Mattis, who was the uh, Secretary of Defense, four-star general, has come out flatly calling this a scurrilous attack, just as former general, four-star general, General Kelly, who is Trump's chief of staff, has come out and said, everything in this that has been said is a scurrilous uh, attack that has no basis. But my point, uh, Robert uh, and Bob, is that this is part of a package. It is no not question, funny, no know. question. It's a part of a package that began before Trump got elected, that is, you know, with all the effort to destroy his campaign, and then immediately after his inauguration. There was every president at least gets the due respect of the hundred days, you know, that's the famous, uh, you know, hundred days of uh, inauguration. Trump never got a nanominute yeah. of respect uh, after his inauguration. I, re I recall uh, speaking on Just Right with the inauguration that as it was being televised, one channel in the, in the United States talked over the speeches, gave their own opinion throughout the inauguration and the addresses. Another channel never said a single word. It was like a funeral. So you're right, not a nanosecond of respect after the election. All right, well, let's pivot from there to 
uh, Bob Woodward's book on the Trump administration. And, I mean, the Washington Post yesterday leaked segments of it. Trump fired back not only that this was a uh, con on the public, but some of the people named denied some of the stories, which could be damaging to Woodward. John Dowd, who was the personal lawyer, who quit. Right? Who, who quit in, in, in the middle of it amongst the very contentious, he's part of a story, he's like, ah, it didn't happen like that. It didn't happen like that. Is this book gonna change anyone's mind? Is this one of those books where if you dislike Trump, you're gonna go, aha, I knew it, this guy's an idiot. But if you're part of Trump's base, you're like, this is fake news. They're just making it up. Bob Woodward is just peddling stories so he can sell a book. Is it changing anyone's mind? I think it adds gravitas to the narrative that there's kind of chaos and that this this individual is not equipped, Trump's not equipped to run something like a government. Um, and if you look at even a Gallup, World Gallup poll that just came out, the, the U.S.'s global leadership standing has dropped precipitously since Trump took over. So, I mean, I think that what Woodward's book does is it adds weight to that, because unlike Michael Wolff's book, um, which is interesting, and I've, I've read it, uh, this is Woodward has hundreds of hours of actual audio recordings. He's had them transcribed. He is no fool, and he certainly has credibility that is well beyond any kind of attack by Trump. And and it might not fundamentally change the views of the base at all, and it might be good schadenfreude for all of the uh, people who hate Trump, but there are a lot of people who voted for Trump because they couldn't stand Hillary, and they wanted to give this guy a chance to see what a shake-up would look like. Those individuals, uh, if you think of kind of like the um, Chamber of Commerce Republicans in the U.S., they might read this book and say, okay, if Woodward is saying that it's that crazy in there, and that this guy literally says, let's let's assassinate a foreign, another leader Leader and there and Mattis has to say yes, we'll do that. Mr. President puts down the phone and says, "Yeah, we're not going to do that, guys." I mean, if if there if it's really at the point where these guys are are um, around someone who is that irrational and that compulsive, uh, then then that might say to the the sort of soft Trump support, this is just too high a risk. You'll need President to relieve. Donald Trump, help us. Please help us, Mr. President, before it is too late, because Jack Dorsey is trying to influence the election, huh? to sway the election. What's she saying? I can't understand her. What? Steal the election. That is why What's she's she? censoring and shadow banning. I have it at end. 12 at half, 15. 7 at end, 20 dollars, 2 at half, 5, 7 at half, 30. Hit 30 dollars down here, 2 at half, 5, 35, 7 at half, 40. Hit 40 dollars, 2 at half, 5, 5, 45, 7 at half, 50. Hit 50 dollars down here, 2 at half, 5, 5, 45, 7 at half, 50. Officer, will you escort this young lady out, please? Hit 2 at half, now 5, 65, 7 at half, 70. Up 2 at half, now 5, 75, 7 at half, 80 dollars to 5, 85, 90. Hit 100 dollars, and a 10, 10, 10, a quarter, 1 to quarter, 1 to half, and a 2, 2 to a quarter. Hit 2 at half, and a 3, you will bomb 3. 300, hit three and a quarter. Cut three and a quarter now, half, half, three and a half. So divide 400. Yeah, but a four. Four and a quarter, four and a half. We're selling the cell phone there. Four and a quarter, four and a half. Hit four and a half, four, seven, five, five hundred, five, five and a quarter, five and a half. I yield back. So what we just heard, Salim, was absolute political theater and the grandest scale, the auctioneer sketch. The auctioneer sketch. <laughs> brought to you by the Congress of the United States at the Jack Dorsey uh, hearings, I understand. Uh, brilliant piece of theater, but it only goes to show the the collapse of decorum, civility, um, gravitas 
that we've seen in the past, uh, it just seems to be thrown out the window with people protesting. And I, and I just don't understand. You just look at the Kavanaugh hearings that are going on, the protesters being dragged out by security. Frankly, I don't know why they're even allowed in and why the chairman hasn't said, clear, clear the gallery. This is just unacceptable. We're not going to put up with this. Clear the gallery, except for press and anybody who's supposed to be here with credentials. But they don't do that. It looks like they're letting anybody in off the street who are then leaving after being dragged out, apparently being paid by a George Soros operative in cash outside, ostensibly to pay for these fines, which I don't know if they're even being fined. So it looks like a payoff. Um, what do you make of it, Salim, this this absolute circus that's going on in the United States? Yeah, um, very good question. But I just want to add to the circus one thing which we just, um, I, I recall, and, 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 and you might have also overlooked, uh, is the most egregious uh, uh, gong show event in the hearing that was going on. These people are invited in by the members of the congressional committees. So the demonstrators are coming in with a security clearance and then they are uh, engaging in doing what they are expected to do. So these are all stage events. And one of the stage event was that Senator Dianne Feinstein, uh, a, a senior Democrat on, on, on this hearing that is going on, uh, of Judge Brett Kavanaugh, brought in one of the uh, parents of a student in Parkland killing uh, that took place in Florida a few months ago. So uh, uh, the father of one of the students, a, a, a black American, was brought in, and he was then, you know, ushered in to go and shake hands with uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Now, Brett Kavanaugh, the, Feinstein did not take the courtesy to let Brett Kavanaugh know that this would happen. And he was suddenly confronted with this man, and he backed off and people started snapping pictures to show this confrontation where the father of a dead child uh, was reaching out to the judge and the judge recoiled. But the judge recoiled because he didn't know who this man was. It could have been somebody who could have been physically attacking him, you know, given the mayhem that is going on. So these are all staged events. What, what, what all of these amount to? My sense of it is that most of the public have tuned off the media. The media have lost all the credibility. What is the basis of my saying that? The results of the 2016 election in America, where the media was all behind Hillary Clinton, you know, 90% and more of the media portrayed Trump negatively and has continued to portray negatively. And yet, you know, Trump won that election. Uh, recently in Canada, the Ontario election in this summer, June, uh, the kitchen sink was thrown at Duckford and the Conservative Party, but the people in Ontario uh, had it enough and they tuned off the media and they decided, you know, who they're going to vote for. So I think uh, this is where uh, the, we will be watching very carefully uh, the midterm election results in America. My sense of it is that America is completely divided. Uh, the media is trying to mobilize, rally it up, ratchet up through all of these gong show 
uh, their fable blue wave that is going to come in uh, and give Nancy Pelosi the house back and she will be the speaker with people like Maxine Waters controlling the gavel and they will then go forward to impeach Trump and to undo his record. On the other side is the entire argument that Trump is doing and his people are doing, but particularly Trump. You and I and uh, Bob, we haven't seen this, at least in our lifetime, a president going almost every week to two or three rallies right across the United States on a midterm election. We haven't seen that sort of phenomena. So Trump because the media is not going to report his story and they are out to politically assassinate, is telling the story about his achievement, that is the achievement of his administration. You know, you have, now the GDP has topped 4%. It's 4.2% in the last quarter, the lowest unemployment uh, uh, in history, or at least in the last 25 years, is down to 3%, you know. The economy is booming, jobs are coming back, industries are hiring people, a full economy, and, and the credit for that is the policy decisions that the Trump administration has made in the last 16 to 18 months. So Trump is talking about that. He's going out. We can see the rallies taking place. And this midterm election is no longer a local election that is dealing with, you know, local issue. This is becoming a national election. On the one side is the Democrats throwing the kitchen sink at Trump. On the other side is Trump and his record. And, you know, uh, he's talking about do you trust the Democrat? Will you vote for the Democrat and allow the gains that we have made in two years and that we can make more all washed away? So I think this is where we are all headed to. It will be a very important election and maybe it is too early to call. The hard issue going into the 21st century is, is Canada a European nation or is Canada a North American nation? We have been talking, you know, you've had me on your show number of time, and we have talked about the American election a number of times. But the Canadian media and the Canadian political elite, just as the Democratic Party in the United States, the left in the United States, have basically trivialized the 2016 election. We have become an echo chamber of the United States media, uh, a dying media. And as a result, I would then say that the situation we came up to with NAFTA, that we were left in a situation where the prime minister was basically AWOL and NAFTA may be dead, is because we did not have a realist understanding of the 2016 election and the election of President Trump. We caricatured him. We are still caricaturing him. That is, our media is doing that. Our, our talking heads on CBC, CTV, uh, Globe and Mail, and others are doing that. And the result is that we as a country are going to pay a price. Well, thank you for joining us once again to discuss these very contentious issues, Salim. But that's it for today. So be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. 
did you get all these things for? Well, that Haney had me over a barrel. Again? We can use them. Is this the milking machine? Now, does that look like a milking machine? Oh, I don't know. I never saw one. Oh, one thing I know, this is the permanent wave machine. That's the milking machine. Well, I never saw one of those. Lisa, Mr. You... Douglas, I got your... Hey, you bought a permanent wave machine. That's a milking machine. Oh.